Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Monitor Monday. We have a great deal of news to report this morning. This is the first day of Ipsalusa, but more on that later. Last Tuesday, however, the U.S. Court of Appeals delivered a major setback to the 340B drug program. Standing by with details is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. If you're an inpatient rehab provider, Angela Phillips is standing by with an important announcement. In other news, HealthQuest Systems has agreed to pay more than $14 million to resolve false claims allegations regarding improperly building an M code. Whistleblower Mary Inman is standing by with that report. J. Paul Spencer reports on the Medicaid rack. And Monitor Monday correspondent Nancy Beckley has the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey. But we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who's making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Services. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. And first, a quick little shout-out to Chris Zanger. How you doing, Chris? Haven't talked to you in a long time. Um, well, so what's happening this week? Well, there's still no outpatient rule. Now, this is really interesting and scary because the proposal must be posted. There must be 60 days given for comments. Then CMS has to review all those comments and write a final rule addressing them. And then they must publish the rule by November 1st to be effective on January 1st. We, I guess we just keep on waiting. I'll also mention that proposed changes to physician documentation and billing, which I discussed last week, made the New York Times. And the proposal is also widely being discussed on social media. And amazingly, most of the comments are negative. I never would have thought there'd be so much negativity to CMS's proposal to get rid of the dreaded 12-point review of systems. The concern seems to be that simple visits and complex visits will all pay the same, so doctors will stop seeing patients with complex problems. I sure hope that doesn't happen. I would bet that most doctors did not become doctors to only care for patients who can make them a lot of money. This discussion also omits the CMS proposal to add a new code that can be used for complex patients who require extra time. I really can't wait to see what CMS does with all of this. Now, what else is new? Well, in this week's Annals of Internal Medicine, there are two fascinating articles that weren't mentioned. The first, which was directed to hospitalists, discusses the toxic effects of bed rest. Why do so many patients spend so much time in bed? Well, part of it is the fault of the hospital architects. Whose smart idea was it to put the TV right in front of the bed? That just promotes patients staying in bed. Second, there's the impression that many patients require physical therapy evaluation to ambulate. Most were walking the day before they were admitted. Why suddenly do they need a therapist? As the article discusses, ambulation can be assisted by patient care aides or even hospital volunteers. And bed rest should never be ordered unless the patient is permanently disabled and was bedbound at baseline. This article sets a goal of 1,000 steps per day for patients to prevent functional decline. The second article looks at dialysis for end-stage kidney disease patients who are undocumented. 
Because these patients rarely can afford dialysis, don't qualify for Medicaid or Medicare, and outpatient centers will not accept them, these patients are usually forced to present to the emergency department when they develop symptoms and then get emergent dialysis. These patients repeat this cycle over and over again. But this article doesn't look at the effects on the patient. It looks at the effects on providers, and the results are not pretty. The authors found consistent patterns in their interviews, and there were four major themes. Evidence of professional burnout, moral distress from propagating injustice, confusing and perverse views of the financial incentives involved, and finally, it did inspire advocacy. Now, these findings are really tragic, but probably not unexpected, and they do need addressing. So ask one of your hospitalists if you can borrow the July 17th issue of Annals of Internal Medicine and read these two articles. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 Physician Advisory Services, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with the latest hot topics and the Monitor Monday listener survey is Monitor Monday senior correspondent Nancy Beckley. Good morning, Nancy. Good morning, Chuck. And I want to give a big shout-out to Lynn McGivern, Chief Compliance Officer at ATI Physical Therapy in Metro Chicago. Lynn is one of our original Monitor Monday listeners, Chuck. So thanks for listening in, Lynn, and being a loyal listener on Monitor Monday. Chuck, today a lot of therapy providers have been in touch with me regarding the targeted probe and educate. You know that? I've done polls on that a couple times this year to see how people feel it's working for them. With respect to therapy, what's quite interesting, and I want to give a heads up to everybody, including hospitals, outpatient therapy centers, and whatnot, that anticipate getting a targeted probe and educate regarding their outpatient therapy program. Number one, in all of the TPE letters, they're requesting a physician order. Be it known, a physician order is not required for outpatient therapy once the plan of care is certified. In fact, one of the targeted probe and educates that I reviewed this week is from NGS, and they routinely discuss that during their online trainings, that a physician referral is not required, just a certification. So when you're responding to a targeted probe and educate, your cover letter should address why there may not be a physician order. Also, a new trend is a refund request. I mean, excuse me, I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Uh, A request for uh, targeted probe and educate related to the use of the new therapy complexity codes for evaluation. There's three different PT codes, three different OT codes. CMS pays them all the same. So it's quite interesting that CMS is doing a targeted probe and educate because they feel they overpaid a certain dollar amount for the use of a higher code than what would be expected compared to the peers. So more to report on that will be coming up. Let's get our poll up now. And I want to refer everybody to Dr. Hirsch's article a couple weeks ago on the physician fee schedule proposed rule, as well as Shannon DeConda's article last week on the CMS proposed DNM changes. That's part one. Part two is coming up. And Dr. Hurst spoke just a little bit about this a minute ago. How do you feel about the E&M guidelines proposed by CMS? 
Check number one if you feel the EMM guidelines need major changes. And check two if the EMM guidelines from your perspective don't need changes or if it's non-applicable. And thanks to our good friends at the American College of Physician Advisors for sponsoring our poll today. Chuck? Thanks, Nancy, very much. That was Monitor Monday Senior Correspondent Nancy Beckley. Nancy is the president and the CEO for Nancy Beckley & Associates. And as Nancy said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday listener survey later in the broadcast. And a special thanks to you, Lynn, for being such a loyal Monitor Monday listener. And coming up at about uh, eight and a half minutes after the hour in your time zone, we're going to hear from Nicole Emanuel, J. Paul Spencer, Angie Phillips, and Mary Inman. This is Monday, July 23rd, the first day of Ipsalusa. It's a summer school all about the inpatient perspective payment system. This is Monitor Monday. Stand by. Monitor Monday is brought to you today by AHEMA, the American Health Information Management Association. Plan now to join your peers in Miami, Florida on September 22nd and 23rd at the annual Clinical Coding Meeting. This perfect mix of business and pleasure will cover topics such as outpatient and physician coding, inpatient coding, CDI, revenue cycle, compliance, auditing, and industry hot topics. Don't miss this great opportunity for learning through educational presentations and peer-to-peer collaboration and discussions. All full advanced online registrations will receive a free 2019 edition AHIMA Codebook, and they are pleased to offer CNEs again this year. Visit ahima.org slash clinical coding for more information. Here's a program note. You ought to plan to download one of the most popular Rack Monitor educational webcasts. This was on malnutrition. Malnutrition, learn five strategies to ward off hungry auditors. It's now available on demand at the Rack University bookstore. And now let's check in with our pal healthcare attorney David Glazer. He returns to the broadcast with a report on some risky business. David, what's risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. So next week, I'll offer my comments about the E&M coding. But this week, uh, as promised, I'm going to follow Nancy's lead. I'm going to talk about orders, although standing orders. For reasons I've never understood, people have a bias against standing orders. They think they aren't valid. Now, it's entirely appropriate to worry about having an order. There's a specific Medicare regulation that requires an order from the treating physician to permit coverage of a diagnostic test. It's found at 42 CFR 410.32, and it says, all diagnostic x-ray tests, diagnostic laboratory tests, and other diagnostic tests must be ordered by the physician who's treating the beneficiary. That is, the physician who furnishes a consultation or treats a beneficiary for a specific medical problem and who uses the results in the management of the beneficiary's specific medical problem. So it sets out three requirements. The physician must be treating the patient, has to use the test results, and there has to be an order. Note that the regulation doesn't require the order to be in writing, and it doesn't require the physician to see the patient before issuing the order. Clearly, the regulation allows a standing order. This is confirmed by the guidance. Medicare Claims Processing Manual, Chapter 12, Section 60, says, a hospital's standing order policy can be used as a substitute for the individual request by the patient's attending physician. This is echoed by the State Operations Manual, which in Appendix 6, Subpart K, includes a statement that standing orders have to be, quote, clearly defined in laboratory policy, describing which tests may be covered. Finally, in part of its laboratory compliance plan, the OIG says, standing orders are not prohibited in connection with an extended course of treatment, 
so long as it doesn't lead to abusive practices. I don't know why standing orders have such a bad rap or a bad rep, but the bottom line is that under Medicare, a standing order is an order. If a physician outlines particular criteria in which a diagnostic test is appropriate and a patient presents with those criteria, the physician has effectively ordered the diagnostic test. Now, as I mentioned above, under Part B, most orders need not be written. We know this because the Halloween 1997 Federal Register explained that orders in an IDTF do need to be written and explained why it differentiated between those orders and other orders. Nevertheless, as a practical matter, I would encourage anyone using standing orders to have those orders in writing. While outside the IDTF, you don't need an order for Part B, I think having that paper in place in front of a judge is going to make the arguments easier. In hospitals, there are conditions of participation to consider, so there too, written orders make sense. Chuck, unfortunately, I'm in the middle of employee interviews as part of a government investigation, so I can't stick around for questions today, but I will address any questions next week. Now, with the topic of standing orders, one might think the song of the day would be R.E.M. or Elton John, I'm Still Standing, but I'm going to go in an entirely different direction. If you have a standing order, there's no need for a new order. I hope that you have true faith in my opinion and recognize that as long as you've got the law on your side, you won't be saying, and I quote, they took my time and they took my money. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Frederickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Now with the report on the Medicaid RAC program in the state of Wyoming is Monitor Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer. Good morning, Paul. Paul, what is happening in Wyoming? I'll start the uh, discussion, Chuck, with a question that I posed to our panel uh, offline before our broadcast started today. Suppose they had a Medicaid program that was so small that nobody came. Well, this is the... uh, the state of affairs in the state of Wyoming, uh, a state that has a population that's less than the city of Milwaukee, where I find myself sitting uh, today. Uh, In a new state plan amendment that was just uh, cleared uh, for the state of Wyoming, there were two things that stood out. The first thing was the uh, recovery audit contractor program. Now, because Wyoming is such a small state, they do not have a Medicare Advantage population uh, as large as other states because Medicare Advantage simply can't profit from the Wyoming Medicaid program. So they still have most of their Medicaid recipients, uh, for what it's worth, under a uh, traditional Medicaid program. But because they are so small, they're having a problem getting a RAC uh, contractor for their Medicaid RAC program, uh, understanding that Medicaid RAC is only for traditional Medicaid claims. They have been given uh, a chance to not only increase the look-back period for recovery audit claims, but also to increase the contingency fee to facilitate the state's attempt to procure a RAC contractor. 
they simply have not been able to get a RAC contractor on their own. In the beginning of the process, they were lumped in with three other uh, sparsely populated states out west in order to have one RAC contractor, and that contract has since expired. So as of July 1st of 2018, if they can find a RAC contractor, that RAC contractor will have an increased look-back period and an increased contingency fee. The other thing that stood out about this particular state plan amendment is that the state of Wyoming now has been exempted from the requirement of having a full-time medical director for their program. Uh, The medical director that will be in place for the state of Wyoming, again, this is a state with only about 580,000 people in the entire state, and you would imagine that a very small percentage of that population is on Medicaid. Uh, Any medical director that they put in will not be full-time, but rather it would be a part-time uh, uh, medical director for the state of Wyoming. So uh, perhaps it's a good thing that the state does not have a, a large Medicaid population, but it does have some uh, problems in administering their the usual uh, standards for a Medicaid program in that state based on their size. We'll keep an eye on it and see if there are any RAC contractors that uh, dare jump into the fray for such a small population. And with that, I'll throw it back to Chuck. Thanks, Paul, very much. That was Modern Monday National Correspondent J. Paul Spencer. He is a senior healthcare consultant for Doctors Management. We now check in with nationally recognized whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary is reporting on the consequences of alleged EM coding errors involving HealthQuest systems. Good morning, Mary. It seems like we're hearing more and more about E&M code problems. This is true, especially on today's program. Um, Good morning, Chuck. HealthQuest, a New York-based family of 54 medical practices, four hospitals, and several other facilities, and one of its hospitals, Putnam Hospital Center, have settled three separately filed False Claims Act actions for a total of $14.7 million. All of the cases were filed by whistleblowers in the Northern District of of New York in Albany. In the first case, which focuses on a six-year period, HealthQuest and Putnam Hospital Center were submitting claims to Medicare for evaluation and management services that were not sufficiently documented at their level. E&M codes are the CPT codes doctors bill to Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurance when they evaluate patients or manage their conditions, something akin to a standard doctor visit as opposed to a surgery or a specific procedure. They are generally broken out into five categories depending on the time the appointment takes and the complexity of the appointment. Lengthier or more complex visits draw a higher reimbursement rate from the insurer. Here, HealthQuest has settled allegations that it was consistently billing E&M codes at two levels higher than what was supported in the medical record. The second settled case focused on a three-year time period and involved the administration of home health services lacking sufficient support for the claims billed to Medicare and Medicaid. Some of the medical records even failed to demonstrate that a face-to-face encounter with a physician had even occurred. The third settled case focused on a 10-month period in 2014 and involved alleged violations of the Stark Law. The Stark Law collectively prohibits hospitals, physicians, pharmacies, nursing homes, DME companies, drug companies, medical device manufacturers, and other medical providers from self-referring patients. 
The law is designed to keep medical treatment decisions free from the influence of potential monetary gain. In this case, two orthopedic physicians had a direct financial relationship with Putnam Hospital Center, allegedly in excess of fair market value for their services, with a goal of capturing their referral stream. In addition to the federal settlement amount of $14.7 million, the state of New York will receive approximately $900,000. All three cases were brought by whistleblowers under the False Claims Act, a federal law that allows private citizens to sue on behalf of the government to prevent fraud and be rewarded with a portion of what the government recovers. Here, the whistleblowers who brought these three cases will receive a cumulative award of just under $3 million. That's it for today. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Mary, very much. That was nicely recognized whistleblower attorney Mary Inman. Mary is a partner at Constantine Cannon's London office. One of the nation's leading authorities on inpatient rehabilitation facilities, Angie Phillips, joins us now for a very important and timely report. Angie, what is this very important and timely report? Good morning, Chuck, and to our listeners. It's good to be back, although today's message refers to an unwelcome message some providers are receiving from their Medicare contractors. And while I usually speak only about ERFs, the same information is important to LTAC, SNF, and hospices. So those of you that are on the line want to make sure you check into this topic. On July 6, CMS announced that notifications to facilities that were determined to be out of compliance with the quality reporting program requirements for calendar year 2017 would be mailed and would also be placed into the facility's CASPERS folders on July 9th. If you received a notice of noncompliance and you really believe that notice is an error, you only have until August 7th, which is a very short time period, to submit a request for reconsideration. The notice is arriving at IRFs within our client base triggered calls for assistance with this issue as the facilities believed they were in compliance, and with deeper review, we agreed that the data had been appropriately submitted for some of them. So at least in some cases, the notices could be an error. The determination of noncompliance is made when required quality data is not submitted when required or when the submitted data is incomplete. ERF submit this data through the ERFPI transmitted in the KEYS system and to the CDC National Healthcare Safety Network, NHSN. Both sets of data have time and requirements for completion of data elements. In the case of the clients we worked with, the deficiencies were noted primarily in the area of infection control items submitted through NHSN. Since the impact is significant, facilities who are not compliant receive a 2% reduction in the fiscal year 2019 annual payment update. Organizations who believe they were compliant should definitely request a reconsideration. Reconsiderations as well as questions can only be accepted via email. Your request should be emailed to IRFQRP reconsiderations at cms.hhs.gov. Again, IRF QRP reconsiderations at cms.hhs.gov. LTAC, SNFs, and hospices can use this same email address by substituting LTCH, SNF, or the word hospice, where I gave the initials IRF. Requests should include any proof of data submission, including submission reports to NHSN or KEYS, and if you had an approved exception, send proof of that exception. 
More information can be located at the CMS website. Our advice, double-check your CASPER system and your organization's Medicare contacts to be certain you did not get a notice. And if you did get a notice, investigate quickly and submit your request on or before the due date, August 7th. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Angie, very much. That was Angela Phillips. Angie is the president and CEO for Image and Associates. Our lead story this morning is about the 340B drug discount program. It was a program that suffered a major setback last Tuesday by the U.S. Court of Appeals. Here now with a report on that problem is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning, Chuck, and hello, happy Monday. I am sorry to say that I am bringing some bad news when it comes to 340B drug program reimbursement rates, but don't shoot the messenger, please. Last week, the axe fell on the American Hospital Association and on hospitals across the country when the U.S. Court of Appeals dismissed the lawsuit that was asking for an injunction on the 340B rate reductions of approximately 30%. AHA asked the court for an injunction, but the courts never even reached the merits of the decision. Both the district court and the court of appeals dismissed the court, dismissed the lawsuit based on jurisdictional issues. Was this decision correct? From my perspective, if AHA could have been a little bit more patient and had it approach things differently, perhaps bringing the lawsuit after the effective date of January 1, 2018 of the rate reductions, there may have been a different result. But you know what they say, hindsight is always 2020. Little bit of background is that on November 1, 2017, HHS released a final rule implementing the payment reduction for most covered outpatient drugs billed to Medicare by 340B participating hospitals. The payment going from the current average sales price plus 6% to average sales price minus 22.5% representing a payment cut of almost 30%. Obviously, that is a really big slash in payments. It became effective January 1, 2018, but only for locations physically connected to participating hospitals. However, very soon, CMS is expected to broaden the reduction to all 340B participating entities. As I said, and I can't get into the absolute details because of time restrictions, but the district court and the court of appeals, neither one of them got to the merits of the case. Instead, the case was dismissed based on lack of subject matter jurisdiction. The courts have held over the years that there's only one potential source of subject matter jurisdiction when it comes to Medicare reimbursement rate lawsuits and that is considered 42 U.S.C. 405G. The Medicare Act places strict limits on the jurisdiction of federal courts to decide any claims arising under the Act. There are two elements that, that basically equal jurisdiction when it comes to Medicare. There's a waivable requirement to exhaust administrative remedies, and then there's a non-waivable that it the issue must have been presented to the secretary. Now, this decision was a unanimous decision. 
three judges from the Court of Appeals sided with HHS and ruled the hospital's suit was filed prematurely due to the fact that hospitals had not formally filed claims with HHS because they hadn't been experiencing the cuts yet. What are the consequences? AHA does have the right to seek certiorari to the Supreme Court. However, the Supreme Court receives requests for cert for approximately 7,000 cases a year, and here's about 80. So the odds definitely point to the Court of Appeals decision standing. You can also refile in district court now that the imminent harm is being felt, but HHS is going to argue arrest judicata, which means the issue's already been decided. AHA and, and hospitals around the country, they're not without remedy. While it's not ideal, hospitals and adversely affected hospitals and AHA can appeal the rate reductions in administrative court. In the meantime, HHS has stated that it will broaden the 340B rate cuts to all 340 participating entities. President Trump announced intent to continue with additional rate cuts going forward in years to come. And Congress has several pending proposed bills, both upholding and striking the rate cuts. So it appears that for now, the litigation route, at least on the civil side, has been stopped. But the lobbying efforts and also administrative litigation can still be tried. Chuck, back to you. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. She was reporting on the 340B drug program. Nicole is a partner in the Potomac Law Group. And now it's time for the results for our Monitor Money listener survey. Once again, here's Nancy. Nancy, we've got a lot of questions coming in this morning. We're not going to have a chance to answer the questions, but let's go through the poll, okay? All righty, Chuck, and thank you to our good friends at the American College of Physician Advisors. And Dr. Hirsch, I'd like to know who exactly these good friends are. Just wink, wink. Okay, CMS has proposed major changes to the E&M guidelines. 57% of our listeners today stated that the E&M guidelines need major changes. 13% of our today's listeners said the E&M guidelines don't need changes, with 29% it was not applicable to them. We'll be back talking a little bit more about E&M next week. Chuck, David Glazer's promised to address that in his segment next week. Thanks, Nancy, very much. That's going to be a wrap for us, and I want to thank you for being with us today, and special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Nancy Beckley, whom you just heard, Nicole Emanuel, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hurst, Angie Phillips, Mary Inman, and J. Paul Spencer. I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor about the Interact Monitor. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.